Are you muted or why can't I hear Matt? Hmm. Matt, I think you're muted. That's awesome. I just did 10 minutes muted. So thank you for... <laughs> this is exactly the impression that I wanted to make. Um, I, like, I like that I'm convinced I'm doing something wrong while you're talking. I'm talking. I'm like, I'm, what, I'm not muted. What am I doing wrong? What am I doing? And then I saw the little thing. I was like, oh, good. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I got to this is the the third different recording platform I have used on this site and I hate all of them because once I learn one they change like something this one you have to it's not enough just to be here you have to be like welcomed to the stream and then you also have to unmute it's like a whole process yeah, no, so this, me answering caused me enormous anxiety you know so let me make so sure So for those of you listening who may be like what the hell is going on I just spent 10 minutes doing my intro to today's episode and the entire thing was on mute. So I'll get back at you with all that stuff later. But as I said at the start, bienvenidos. Welcome to the Jackman Sports Show. This is episode 91. Um, we're getting very close to episode 100, which I'm very excited about. Shout out to the great number 91s in sports history, the great Lithuanian New York Nick, Mandagas Kuzminskis, and also um, one of my favorite New York Mets, Carlos Gomez, who in classic Met fashion is probably more famous for almost being traded for, but then not actually being traded for, and the Mets instead getting you on yeah. I'm an 86 Met alum. I'm one of those few Met fans who always assumes things will work out. So to me, Carlos Gomez is completely emblematic of Met history. He was supposed to come. It fell through. That seemed like it sucked, but it worked out for the better. So 91, good number. Let me get to today's guest, who will also, I'm sure, have things to say about the Knicks and the Mets, and potentially Carlos Gomez. Uh, today's guest, screenwriter, playwright, director, producer, has been showrunner for Law & Order SVU, as well as Criminal Intent, as well as also the programs Lights Out and In Treatment. He was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his play Sideman, has immaculate taste in both basketball and baseball teams, and I learned today also a stand-up comedian yeah. Octuple threat, Warren Light. Welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's really nice to be here. This is, I don't mean to brag, but this is not my first podcast, but I'm, I'm happier to be here than on some of the others. I think, as anyone can tell from the fact that you were the one to point out that I've been on mute for 10 minutes, you are definitely a podcast veteran, uh, and I am happy to have an adult on the show today. Um, I want to talk about sports in a little bit with you, Warren, but I also want to start. Um, by asking you some stuff about the recently resolved um, WGA strike. Um, the union has voted to ratify the agreement, so it seems like everything is good. Um, there was a really good interview today in GQ with um, the writer John August, and he had some good things to say. And I wanted to kind of use that as a leaping off point to some questions to ask you, because you were you were there every day. You were on the picket line. Um, you were informing a lot of us over social media about things that were going on. And just because the strike is over, it doesn't mean that um, there isn't stuff to discuss or break down. So um, this was the second longest WGA strike ever. Um, and I think it's important to talk about, especially on this show, because I, I think a lot of people don't understand the reality of 
when someone is a writer, I think there's an image that comes to mind of what that means in terms of affluence and in terms of pay and things like that. And like, I am a lowly minnow in the world of like paid writers. Like I do it, but like, I'm not at the level of a lot of people. And I, I get emails and hateful DMs from people who assume that like, I'm Clark Kent from the Richard Donner Superman movies. And I've got like a cubicle at a downtown newspaper and I've got a stipend and I make a living wage and the reality is that's not how it is for a lot of writers. So one of the things that that came out that I thought social media was helpful at combating was the usual assault on on the strikers is like, oh, look at these, you know, look at these uppity writers, like look at them wanting something that they don't deserve. And it felt like you and a lot of people were able to utilize social media as a way in real time of being like, hey, like, let's let you know what's really going on and what the reality is. So. First, what is it that led to the actual strike happening? Was there some seminal event? Had this been building up for a while? Like, how does this, how does this end up becoming a strike? You know, it, I'm glad you asked that. Usually when we write, we talk about an inciting event, something that triggers your story, that gets, gets, you, gets you moving, uh, usually on page 10, ideally in the street. But anyway, uh, this was 15 years of gains writers had fought for being eroded day after day after day. As streaming came in, as this era of what was dubbed peak TV came in, what, what, what ended up happening was that the writers who are mining the gold didn't get to keep any of it. It, it was the classic thing where the, the, you know, the, the guy selling the shovels and the jeans did really well. And over time, the, the writers were doing, it was, almost inconceivable because you watch these shows, you watch Succession, you see helicopters flying over fjords in Norway, you see all this real estate porn on these TV shows, you see all this wardrobe porn. And what they, what they somehow had managed to do was uh, find ways to reduce writers' income, to, to, pay, uh, to take longer to pay, to stretch out the amount of time you worked for less and less income. So over the course of 10 years, it was estimated writer salaries had essentially dropped by 25%. And they, they did it. Look, I was lucky. I was on SVU. I mean, lucky and 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 uh, worked. You, you may have earned it, Warren. I worked like a dog. But, uh -huh. but, but the thing about a TV show in the old days, network television was 22 episodes. That was a season. And so you had, if you were lucky enough to get in, you were hired. Usually the writer's room would open up six weeks before shooting begins. So June 1st, and you go all the way to mid-April or you, you basically get a 42-week run of employment. Mind you, you get two weeks off for Christmas that are unpaid. There, there is no such thing as a paid vacation. I have never had a paid vacation in my life. I don't think I'm ever going to get one. But you get a two-week break at Christmas. Uh, uh, that, you know, and by, after Christmas, you're basically running on fumes from January 2nd to April 20th. The, you, you have about 12 episodes in a row to knock out. And there's a President's Day, maybe one day off that you also don't get paid. You don't get, you know, you just, when the, the day you stop working is the day you stop getting paid in TV. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you, you, you could get a 22 episode run, a 40 week run of, of guaranteed labor. What they did with streaming was they, they dropped down to eight episode series or 10 episode series. And, uh, and instead of also when you're on a TV show for 22 weeks, because of 22 episodes of the pressure of turning one out after another, after another, you've got to keep your staff on, on staff, on hire, because mm -hmm. one guy turns it in and the next guy's prepping one, one guy's coming up with a plot. The, the pressure of turning out that many episodes in that little time means you need as many hands on deck for as long as possible. And you need people on set, because 
If I'm shooting and plotting and editing and dealing with whatever brick came through the window that day, I can't always get to set for eight hours. So I want a writer on set for when, when um, so, uh, someone po possibly throws a tantrum, hypothetically. Um, right. Not Mariska, just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> not Mariska. She, she was pretty right. well. Uh, but but other, uh, there, are, there, are, there are some, you deal with some, some, uh, some tough characters in TV. So you, you're, you, you've gone from the system where people are getting 40 weeks, an eight episode show. And then they said, you know what? We don't know. They, they began to go to the system of, we like the pilot. We don't know if we're going to go to series. So why don't we get three or four guys in a room and let them spend three or four weeks stitching together the arc of the season so we see where it goes and maybe kind of loosely plotting out four or five episodes so we see where those go. And essentially, that would give them the, um, the blueprint for the season. And then you'd be on hold. And you'd get four weeks pay at the minimum because they were no longer, look, we're, we're not sure if we're going, so we'll give you the minimum. And the minimum is a good weekly rate if you're getting it every week. But if, if you get the minimum for five weeks and that's your job for the year, you don't make enough to get health insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't make enough. You, you, you know, by the time the agent and a lot of people have managers and the lawyer, you, you're taking home uh, uh, shortbread. So... Mm -hmm. So a lot of guys got sucked into these mini rooms and it sounded cool because it was Netflix instead of I was on the dinosaur of NBC. It was the cool place to be. Uh, and you know, it's like a bad marriage to a beautiful woman. It takes you a while to feel, to realize you're not happy. And what, what, started, what started to, uh, you, and you don't trust it, but I'm at Netflix, I'm at Hulu, but you're right. working four weeks. And then they'd say, we're not sure if we're going to series. Um, if we do go to series, we may take you. So you can't book another job. And that was called SPAN. You can't book another TV show because you're on hold to us. So that was another thing. And people were like, wow, oh, that's cool. Wow, on wow, hold. Wow. And yeah. then they go to series. And instead of hiring the whole mini room, they would say, you know what? We're going to series. Um, we're going to hire two of you. And maybe we'll give one of you a freelance episode. And that was it. So you, and you might not find that out until you've been held for four months, done six weeks. By the way, to get into the mini room, Usually it's two months of job interview after job interview and going in and pitching and telling the showrunner what you think the show, the, the amount of free work you do to get hired for a job that lasts three weeks. It, it's, what's, what's starting to happen is the money you're earning is getting stretched out. You're doing work easily 10, 12 weeks before you're hired, just trying to get a foot in the door. You're hired. You're not on staff for long. You're put on hold. Maybe you're brought back. Maybe you're not. And then what they started to do is they'd maybe give you another four weeks, maybe. And then when they go into production, now that they have the scripts all prepped, they let go of the whole staff. And the showrunner is basically now in charge of everything all by himself or all by herself for the run. So the showrunner, his life has gone from, I'm a showrunner, I'm making good money, to it may take him a year and a half to finish those eight or nine episodes by the time you have to edit. And the amount of, and he's paid by the episode. So that's where wow. they got, that's where they got the showrunners. You know, you're going to get 30,000 an episode or $25,000 an episode. And there was, again, shorter money. Sounds mm -hmm. great. But spread out over a year and a half, $150,000 spread out over a year and a half, minus agent, minus manager, minus taxes. Showrunner, in some cases, I've been on some shows where the showrunner is making less than the people on weeklies. When mm -hmm. COVID hit, when everything stretched out because we, we had all these COVID protocols, the guys who made out really well, it was kind of amusing to me, were the staff writers on weeklies because it took 52 weeks to do what we used to do in 30. 
and they were getting paid every week. But as a showrunner, you got you only did 16 episodes in 50 weeks as opposed to 22 episodes. And so the guys who did well were it was kind of I mean, if you, if you had a sense, if it wasn't your life, you'd find it would funny. But they, <laughs> you know, so so what they managed to do over time, they found every loophole. We have what's called a minimum basic agreement an MBA. They found every loophole in it and they ran they ran through it, you know, just like like entire battalions ran through those loopholes. And what mm -hmm. people found out, uh, you know, the notion that you could be on hold, the mo that is, there was no such thing as, a, there was nothing in the contract about a mini room. It just happened. You know, it's like, hey, we don't know if it's going to go. Do you mind? We'll pay you a little just to see. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's like the opposite of a drug dealer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Even the drug dealers have better ethics than these you know, people. Yeah, so, the, so people were just, and I didn't, I was a little bit uh, out of that loop because I was I was over at SVU and where my residuals there are good. All of you know, you, SVU. While we speak, there's eight million people watching it anywhere in Kazakhstan. So you would, and they're watching it. They're still watching it on USA TV or on Ion TV or something mm -hmm. like that. So, mm -hmm. and the other part of this puzzle was with every iteration of distribution, with every new way of distributing a, a TV show. The residual drops. So uh, the best money in the world was when they would rerun your show on net, net on network. Channel Four is doing a rerun tonight. That's that that's great. That's eighty percent of what you got to write it. But they don't do many network reruns anymore. Yeah. The next best thing was those reruns on Channel Nine, Channel Eleven, like the My TVs and mm -hmm. those were great. But they don't do too much of that. Then it'd be USA Cable. There's a deal there. There were other things. Uh, then there was DVDs. We got killed on that deal. Uh, you know, every time a new technology came in, they said, we don't know what the ramifications of this new technology will be. So we can't give you much right now. When we know what it is, we'll we'll get back to you. Right. And guess what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the DVD money is estimated to have cost writers a billion dollars over time. Just the money we didn't get. Really? You know, yeah. Like routinely, people know that they lost out. Uh, $100,000, $200,000 on a movie because it just, it never trickled. First of all, it was video cassette money, then it was DVD money. And now right. you move to streaming. And I, I, this is, I wrote a movie that bombed, I wrote many things that bombed, but one of them was a movie called Dear God. And I wrote it, I got, or I co-wrote it officially. And it, uh, it, it didn't do very well, but it's a Christmas movie. And it was 1990. Every, every, once a year, I'll get some checks from Paramount for that. Mm. And I just got one, and it's a Christmas movie. So it probably shows like in Minnesota, Christmas Eve or something, some somewhere in the country. And there was a check for TV rights for $48, which great, fantastic. And then there was a, a cable check for like $1.60. It's like, okay. And then there was a streaming check that came with this. And this is probably, I don't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't worth the self-harm to look up where it's streaming, but <laughs> but wherever it's streaming, it's probably a three-year deal. Uh, and my residual for streaming, which means anybody can, I don't know if anyone's watching it, but anyone can watch it at any time in the next three years. My streaming residual was two cents. So the ratio is $38 to two cents. Yeah. That's, that's not very good. And yeah. that's so, and of course, everything's moving to streaming. We're all cutting the cord. We're all going. So what they have done is created a different way of distributing stuff that cuts people out of any residuals. And the, the other part about being a writer is you can be out of work at any moment for any reason. 
for a crime you didn't commit, you go to movie prison. If you write a movie that doesn't do well, you're sent to movie prison for two years. If your TV show changes showrunners, you're not getting hired the next year because he's bringing his boys in. And you're out of work and residuals get you through the downtimes. There's, there's very few writers who are consistently employed over the years. It's a manic depressive career, sorry, bipolar, we now say. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, you just don't, I remember once I went for a mortgage, the first time I went for a mortgage and I had a good year. They said, well, you're a freelancer. Can we see the year before? And the year before was like disastrous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 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 and, and she said, well, can we look at uh, uh, then two years before that? We're just trying to give you this mortgage. We want to make it work. And the year before that was good. And the year before that was disastrous. And, right. and it kept going like that. And she finally said, can I ask you a question? Why do you even bother working in the even years? <laughs> but, but of course, that was the time either some a project fell through or I was working on something and didn't sell, you know, it, it, it just happened that it was at literally every other year going back 10 years. You know, it was, mm-hmm. uh, um, it's like farming, you know, it's just, and you can, you can just, the bad storm can just blow you out, you know. Yeah. Uh, true. Very so, true. So what happened is people started uh, when, you know, you're coming close to the negotiation, people started comparing notes. I went to some captain's meetings where, cause I was going to, you know, I'm, I'm one of the gray hairs in the guild now. I thought I should, when I broke in, the aging blacklisted writers of the 50s were the ones who were marching. Wow. Uh, and it's, it sets a tone. We all understand. Like this strike, I don't get anything out of the strike, but this strike was for the next group of kids. Kids meaning anyone under 50. And, uh, you know, but, but this strike was for the next group, but those guys took a strike for me in 88. So we, that's the tradition in the Writers Guild. And it, 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 and it does come out of the blacklist. It does come out of guys who mm-hmm. sacrificed a lot. Um, so we, we all knew we weren't, I, I looked around and there were all these people. And in fact, as a showrunner, I'll meet with people who are coming in, uh, for a job on the show to write. And they have been on three or four shows. And I go, okay, talk to me a little bit about your onset experience. And they go, well, um, I've never been on set. Hmm. And that was heartbreaking to me because, so you write and you've never been there when the actor says, I don't get why I'm saying this. You've never mm-hmm. had to fix something, you, you know, and and they're not learning. That's a big part of your craft is here a scene performed by really good actors. If it's not working, maybe you need to do something else to that scene uh, or this actor can't make that work. What can you do to help? Yeah. This yeah. yeah. Uh, so they didn't have that experience. And I got into the rooms and these kids were just it was one horror story after another about 18 months of, of work and, and essentially three months of pay and that kind of thing. And, I, and it, it bubbled up from the rank and file to the leadership that mm-hmm. this is people, people can no longer make a living in New especially for New York or LA, which are the two hubs. Yeah. Y- you can't, you can't make it work when the residuals have dropped. These are guys who'd had the streaming shows, but there are virtually no residuals still, no matter what they say for, for streaming. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and so there's, there's nothing they get a downtime and the check comes in and it's for two cents. The, the, we get the checks in a green envelope, which is supposed to be exciting, but when it's two oh my seconds, God, that's so cruel. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it so much worse. Anyway, that's a long answer, but it just turned out over time, everything had eroded uh, probably on purpose by the studios. They know exactly there was, it wasn't like we told them this and they were like, 
we had no idea. Let's yeah. rectify that right away. <laughs> so, uh, they, they, uh, they, they had figured out how to reduce the percentage of money writers get as a percentage of the show. Uh, and we're, it was working for them. Yeah. So, so two of the things that come up from that, um, that I think sound like they were codified in the, in the agreement going forward. Um, one is, it sounds like now th there's some sort of mechanism in place for the, for the, for the writers having access to streaming numbers um, yeah. that they didn't have before. Is that true? Well, we never were allowed. Nobody knows what's going on in streaming. It's like Wizard of Oz time. So, uh, yeah. so what they, 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 it's kind of cute what they came up with. Six members of the Writers Guild will be sworn to secrecy, have to sign an NDA. They'll be allowed to look at the numbers. That's, um, which is, but, uh, but also for the first time, there's another problem with, with streaming residuals, uh, and it hasn't fully been solved with this, it, this contract, but you, you just saw this show Suits, which yeah. was on NBC, right? It was not a, not a, a streaming success. And it yeah. was on Peacock and Peacock probably sold it for very little money or leased it for very little money to Netflix, where it becomes the number one show in the world. Mm -hmm. The same thing happened during COVID to Manifest. People were shackled to their homes and Manifest, eight, five seasons of Manifest, it was billions of minutes, billions of minutes. Mm -hmm. and, and the way streaming is set up, whether no one watches your show or billions of people watch your show, you don't get anything, you get nothing extra in success. Mm -hmm. Like if, if I write a movie and it does well in DVDs, my residuals are based on a percentage of the DVD sales. Right. That's fair. If you write Hamilton, I believe Lin-Manuel Miranda has done very well. Uh, I would think so. <laughs> he's got a future. He's, he's good. He's set. Yeah. Uh, uh, but if you write, if you were on Suits, and it is now being the most, it's now the most watched show in the world. You get nothing extra. So the so, people who wrote that show and put it on the air, there's no bump for them. From... There was a little bump for the sale to Netflix, but no bump when it becomes. Well, not the... yeah, yeah, not for the, okay. And, and that hasn't fully been solved, but what this, but we got a foot in the door, which is shows written for streaming will now, if they meet a certain threshold, which is, I think, if 20% of the subscribers to Netflix watch it in the first three months, something like that, that's the threshold. If you get across that threshold, you will get a, a, a bonus, a significant bonus over the original residual. I think 50% of the original residual again. So that's, that's the first acknowledgement that uh, people in success, we will share. You know, compare that to the guys who wrote Friends or Seinfeld, whose great grandchildren will never have to work. You know. Um, and, uh, but that's so that's that's a, a significant um, opening. It, and a lot of the, the history of all guilds is you, 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 you get the door open a little in the first year of the contract. Three years later, you go back for more. You go back for more. You go back for more. But uh, that's just the nature of labor negotiation, I think. Obviously, the other big issue I think you're going to get to is A.I., I'm going to get to that in a second because that's like a big, big issue. But just the other thing that sounded to me um, compelling about maybe a new, a new way going forward is that it sounds like there's a minimum number now as far as writers' rooms go. And because you raised the point before of it, it sounded like, is this a response to the studios trying to like, okay, you know, we'll just have three of you 
you know, you're all doing the work and like, no, that's not it. Like, why was it so yeah. important to make sure there's a, there's a minimum number of writers in the writer's room? There's a few reasons. And one of them gets you to AI. So I'll save that for okay. the end. Okay. <laughs> but, but basically, uh, these eight episode shows, they were putting them on the back of a showrunner and one person. Uh, and, and you would discard, you would do the mini room and discard everybody. The, the, the writers who plotted out the whole season and may have plotted out every episode, they were like a booster rocket that just gets discarded. And oh once, you know, it just burns up in the atmosphere. Thank you. Goodbye. But, and by the way, very often they would put you on hold for four months and then discard you. Mm. Like you can't. So, and you couldn't take a job in the meantime, right? You can't take a job. Or you have to say, well, I'm on hold on this. And there's honor among thieves out there. It's like, well, if you're on hold on that, we're not. Nobody's going to put me on staff if right. my other show. This is called first, that shows in first position. Okay. It's like, you know, I'm engaged to you if my marriage doesn't work out. It doesn't, you know, it's a, it's an unlikely sale. Um, right. so you can't get hired as easily and certainly not for a good rate if you could leave the job the minute another show goes if they ask you to. But most of the time they wouldn't ask you to. They would just keep, right, you, right. keep you on hold. I mean, it was a, a form of servitude that just got exploited. And so that's called span. And that also got readjusted in this. But the notion that they could just hold people without pay preventing you from taking other jobs indefinitely and, and, and didn't, have, well, of course they didn't have a problem with that. <laughs> it's like, well, it's remarkable. What you describe in 2023, like this sounds like what athletes were fighting against like 50 or 60 years ago, just yeah. to have the right to like, I don't want to just negotiate with one team. Like, I, like an athlete back then, there was no practical opportunity to, Okay, if the Yankees aren't meeting my demands, I'll talk to the Phillies. Like there was no, but that and that's kind of this black and white. Oh, sports used to be so yeah, insane. making man sell cars in the winter, all that stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what's uh, not only that we used to not have this. It's when the move came to streaming, they all the stuff came back. All the stuff mm -hmm. that we had 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 won fights over came back. It, you know, you don't NBA. What do you get? Forty seven percent for the the owners and 50 okay. some, some, it's a nice it's a better take uh, and somehow the guys who create the people who create the content and i hate the word content but the people who write the shows have somehow uh been considered you know I, I don't like even the analogy to gig workers because i think that's disrespectful but it, it is the same it is by the way silicon valley mentality yes. of, uh, of we will job you in in fact one of their proposals that we had no coverage if you write for Fallon or Colbert on network TV, there's a good contract in place. Same program on streaming, there was no contract in place. Mm. There was no guarantees. And some people were trying to, uh, and we, we just got coverage there. But one of their proposals initially, when you go on Fallon or Colbert, there's a minimum, you get a contract. It's a weekly contract. You get a certain wage for the week. They wanted to say, can we, we want to hire people to come in as comedy writers and have them work one day. Not even so. The, their initial proposal was to say, "Can you come in for a day, and 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 write jokes for for the show?" Not even a week's. Now, I broke in. I wrote like jokes for comics, and you'd go to Dangerfields and you'd tell a joke, and if you liked it, he'd slap a twenty on the bar, and that was, <laughs> you know, but that was that was a hundred years ago, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and a twenty was cash, <laughs> you know. But, but they were going to pay a day rate to television comedy writers and, and didn't, you know, and, and offered it without, well, there's no shame. So I was going to say, <laughs> maybe you know, don't so, look for that. So it was, it was uh, often described as an existential 
uh, fight, meaning writers will no longer be able to make a living. As, you will no longer be able to exist as a television and movie writer. The industry will, has, will have killed its young. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why it was, it was horrible to strike Lasseter as long as it did. It caused in, incredible pain, not just to writers, not just to actors, but the catering truck guys. The, yeah. the, the the film equipment rent the parking PAs who sit in the car all night and sleep outdoors so that there's places for the drug people have been out of work for five months uh, incredible pain but it, it it oddly it was relatively easy to sustain the strike because people knew they had no choice if we hmm. don't win this time we've lost anyway it's over right. so, uh, plus they had so fucked writers up over the years that most many writers are so used to three weeks on, six months off. A lot of people have side hustles now, secondary, right? right? You know, people, I, I tutor, this one tutors SATs, this one edits this, this one, I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to think of how many people help people write college essays, but, you know, <laughs> but, but, but the people have found other ways to sustain themselves. And sometimes even when you get a job, they take about four months to pay you. So you kind of have a dromedary approach to income where you, you get a check and you, 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 you just don't spend it, you know? Yep. Yep. Uh, so, so writers actually, I think we're able to weather it better than some of the crew members who are used to working week after week after week. And, uh, we felt uh, horrible for the, the crew guys and the teamsters, many of whom took bullets for us and yeah. uh, refused to cross our lines. Let me ask you about that. Before we get to AI, that's something else that I wanted to ask about. During the time that this strike was going on, one thing that was that was really kind of incredible to see were not only in other unions in, in related industries, but how many unions in any industry around the country went on strike, were in solidarity, proclaimed. Like, I don't, I don't remember seeing in my life, uh, I'm not a union, I'm not a labor expert, but like, I don't remember seeing that kind of thing where like one group is on strike and maybe people with a connected interest also proclaim solidarity, but like there were a lot of people. We had a lot of what you're describing, everything you're talking about in my life as a writer and as a professor, all of what you're saying hits my life also, like everything. It's all the same for teachers. It's all the same for, for adjuncts. It's all, they, yeah. That, I think, was why we went from being rich asshole writers to, oh, God, you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there was amazing solidarity. And, and I think one of the reasons I'm happiest the strike settled and it's, and, and it's a win is it sends a different message. Uh, it sends a very strong message uh, right now. I mean, you know, you remember the air traffic controllers when Reagan fired them. Who fires air traffic controllers? There's a little risk to that. But he did it and he got away with it. And that broke the back of unions in America for 40 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. And this is called, we started to call, everyone's calling it the long, hot labor summer. And now it's the fall. I think UPS, I think UPS blinked because they saw how long our strike was going. They saw the, the efficacy mm -hmm. of other things. And they were like, they can't afford a three month strike. There's FedEx, there's, there's other companies and they blinked. And I think yeah. that, that it, every labor win strengthens the hands of other labor groups. And so suddenly we had, I would just remember days where you'd have teachers marching with us, adjunct professors, Columbus students, you'd have nurses marching, you'd have uh, flight attendants. And it was, you know, um, it was, it was important to, to us to get that support, especially at the start before SAG went out. 
to have extra bodies on the line. Because mm-hmm. in New York, it's a small guild. And we were shutting shows down with um, not that many bodies. And yeah. so that kind of support was good. And it's understood there's a compact now, I think. Uh, that now that the strike's ended, it's not like everybody goes back to being an asshole. I think that people have been, uh, I'll say, radicalized by it to the point where all the signal chat threads and WhatsApp threads that we all have going are now, there's a uh, help go up to Tarrytown and, and march with the UAW today. The nurses in New Jersey are still on strike. There's a sense that it, it, these guys have gotten away, these guys meaning the CEOs and the, the, you know, the, the gap, that gap that was the ratio of what the highest paid, it used to be the ratio of the highest paid to the lowest paid at a, at a corporation. Now they do the ratio of the highest paid to the median they, and they say, because the, the ratio of highest paid to lowest paid is, is too obscene, but even right. to the median, it's like 300 yeah. to one. So mm-hmm. you're 100 to one. So people, have, people know what's going on. You know, I, I think the same way the rank and file was ahead of leadership at our guild, I think the, the workers are ahead of our political leaders in terms of understanding how badly we're all getting ripped off to feed that very, 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 very top of the pyramid. And this, you know, this strike, they were more, I always predicted it would end before October 1st. And I knew it in my blood because the third quarter reports have to come out. And I knew they were hemorrhaging money. And I knew they wanted to say, well, we hemorrhaged money in the third quarter, but that's because of the strike. And that strike is now in the rear view. And it's, it's all about placating Wall Street. It, yeah. it, uh, it's not at all about, obviously it's not about creating good content and it's not about it's just it's we're we're all servants to to you know etfs and and stocks and that kind of thing and and i think people have this it's it's you know and the writers could articulate that and we had social media and then the actors came in and they're good looking and and tell the story well and emotionally and and and, but people are relating to it because it's happened to everybody yeah it's happened to musicians right i mean you we had uh, local aid was with us all the time um, because what's happened to their income? What, you know, the, 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 the spotification of their income, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's no more record sales. You're on Spotify and you get a, a penny when you used to get $50. And uh, so that, you know, we, well, the Spotify actually pays more than Netflix does in residuals, but that, it's as bad, as bad as that formula is, there at least some connection to how your thing does. So That's amazing. Uh, I think that there was a, a sense of, uh, you know, we, you can't take it anymore. And the, that, that we won, uh, I'm happy that it's, because it, it, it sends a very loud message to other guilds and it sends a loud message to management mm-hmm. uh, in various places. It's like something's going on and we, we can't control it. The, the studios have always been able to tamp these things down. The, the actors had not gone out with us since 1960. We're always, wow. the writers guild always goes on strikes. You know, every 15 years, some blood, <laughs> so there must be some blood. But, right. but there hadn't been a joint strike since 1960. And that wow. was the year that we won health plan, pension, and residuals. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like the joint strike. And nobody, you know, in an ideal world, the directors would have gone out, but that that's just never going to <laughs> that's a different that's a different thing yeah yeah let me ask you about um so let's get to ai for a second and i know so just in my job as a professor i'm very right now as a writing professor i don't know how to factor this in i know my kids are using it 
in different ways. I think some people just stereotypically think, oh, they're cheating, and some of them are. Yeah. But um, I know I know some academics who are in support. They think like this is a tool. Don't demonize it. It's like any other tool. You can use it. I everything I have everything I read about proposals from these studios for how they wanted to use AI. Nothing sounded to me like, oh, this is just a tool that we're all trying to learn how to master. Like it sounded like the monster is in the cage. We want to let it out. We need your permission. Will you let us let it out? It didn't yeah. sound at all like there's anything progressive for the writers to come out of this. So in the settlement now, like and you just said, you, you, every 15 or so years, there has to be blood. Do you think right now there's like enough of a, well, what was the, what is the agreement now in terms of like, what's new about? Well, there, there was nothing in place. And the initial offer was, uh, we'll form a committee to talk about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that always works so well. Because that works really well, and we're still waiting for the committee on DVDs to get back to us. You know? <laughs> uh, so, right. so that wasn't going to work. Um, and this gets you to why we have minimums. Going backwards for a second, because what what's very likely to uh, what they're look. I I, I understand um, the Law and Order universe very well, and there have been 500 episodes of SVU. It would be relatively easy to feed those 500 into the machine and generate the 501st episode of SVU. And it might not be good, but it would have you know, some, some signposts here and there that are right and some characters. Are, and then instead of 11 writers on staff for 40 weeks, you would have one showrunner who probably doesn't like other writers anyway. Uh, and he would get the AI script and rewrite it. And now you've lost 400 weeks of work and you have one guy. And there's no, also I believe you've lost any, um, possibility of, of soul or humanity in the writing of, of human yeah. experience and voice. I'm sorry. You know, I know it's good and it's going to get better, but what happens in a writer's room is intimate. What happens when you write is, is, is intimate and you end up revealing things either purposefully or yeah. subconsciously. Your writing is informed by your life. Your writing is beautiful and it's, and you make a point of referencing. You're not just, I don't, I'm sorry. I shouldn't even say that. You're not writing a sports recap you're, you're, you're writing about your life experience when you do, and that's why you're, I find your writing so compelling. Uh, good, good TV writers do that. Yes, they're hacks who just kind of go, oh, there was a scene on this episode, I'm going to steal it. But a lot of the times the writing is heartfelt or from, from you know, we had, there were signs at the march, uh, AI didn't have a traumatic childhood. <laughs> uh, it's funny because it's true. Yes, <laughs> I loved it. But that... But you, that what you know, whether you're a musician or a painter or a writer, it comes out in your art. It's it's the way you express yourself. And and a machine's not a machine is just I guess it's literally ones and zeros choosing what the next logical word is. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's going to be less um, heartfelt, <laughs> less from the soul. I'm just going to do that. So so we were aware that as of now the possibility was they could have uh, entire seasons of television generated by AI. Uh, and one guy in a room uh, polishing it for the actors, getting it into the right. You know, as a showrunner, I do a lot of rewriting. That's my job. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I'm rewriting an AI script, could I do that and make it, get it, as, as uh, Dick Wolf would say, get it up to a B plus? Yeah, probably mm -hmm. I could. Uh, mm -hmm. But at, at what, also what loss to the guild, if those 10 writers lose their jobs across 50 shows, now your health plan collapses. Now your pension collapses. You know, it's it's... It's, it's, we were aware of the cataclysmic possibilities and the idea of a committee to study it didn't seem uh, healthy. So where we ended up uh, was, 
even if AI, if there is an AI script, the person who rewrites it gets full credit for it. He owns the rights to it. We have the we they don't they don't have the right to to diminish your salary because of AI. And there, there's also huge copyright issues with AI because isn't AI actually based on 35 other writers' scripts? And who owns? Should they get some sort of? There, there's a lot of. Uh, there's no legal clarity on any of this. And I think one of the things you're going to see is the guilds are going to go to state legislatures in New York and California hmm. and try to protect writers uh, that way as well. And there's, I, I noticed there was a little thing in the contract about the writer's guild reserves the right to sue in, in the event of copyright infringement. Because, yeah, I, I saw that. That's yeah, great. I, I thought, okay, so they're, they're, going to they're going to try to legislate stuff that isn't precluded yet. But, but the notion that... The plan was obviously to get rid of as many writers as possible and, and, and thus weaken the guild even more. Mm -hmm. And I believe two things happened. I think that was, you hope the language stops it, but um, they'll find loopholes. But I also think that they got um, humbled by, by the, the guild's, uh, the strength of, of the guild's response. I don't think they're gonna push things like that for another 14 years, I think. <laughs> I, th I think they realized that, that, that uh, they, they, they inadvertently awakened uh, a generation of writers. And it's the, you know, it, it was, there were quotes when we were by July and, and, and things were faltering a little bit. Yeah, the studio plan is to wait till November to negotiate because by then writers will be homeless, getting evicted from their apartments, and it'll soften their demands. And that was kind of like the equivalent of in, in sports when somebody says, we're going to kick this team's ass and somebody else. <laughs> And you put it on, put it on your locker room. You have bulletin board material. But it was bulletin board. It was absolutely bulletin. It was like we knew that was the plan, but somebody was dumb enough to say it to Deadline.com, yep. and um, yep. And it, it, it. Everybody thought. I mean, if if you, in case you ever wondered what management thinks of you, <laughs> it was made clear. Yes. Know? Yeah. I think it's it's been really really encouraging because I think. I think a lot of people, if you're not in a union, I think a lot of people almost follow it, if they follow it, probably through sports as much as anything, yeah. because labor issues will interfere with sports. And, back, you know? <laughs> like, and what you just described is, is in a lot of industries, it's almost invariably how things will play out whenever you have a, maybe outside baseball, because their union's a little different, yeah. but certainly in the NBA, certainly in the NFL, Whenever there is a work action and there is a, a strike or even a lockout going, um, you, you see it all the time. And every article will highlight it. The owners can wait this out. They know that at some point the players won't some of the players won't be able to afford to. They'll crack and they'll win. Yeah. Seeing an industry that people like care about, like have a emotional investment in, um, function in this way, like show solidarity show like we're not going to crack at the first sign of of this is getting hard for some people I, I think and i think the point you raised earlier i think is really i think this is a very special labor action and i think one reason for it is as you articulated i think a lot of people saw that this is everybody's fight this isn't the writers are trying to get whatever our, our, our this, yeah it's not that at all like this everyone is going through the experience of i am being asked to do more with nothing yeah, and that's... and while I am seeing everything going over here, it, we're seeing it everywhere. 
So yeah. seeing one industry, and August made a good point about this in the GQ interview. He's made a comment, something like, you know, when you when you go into an action against 11,000 of the best riders in the world, like they're going to be on point with messaging. Like you don't want to maybe fuck with 11,000 riders. And I was so encouraged to see so many times like traditional, like you'd see little stories or quotes would come out to try to, to work against. And immediately there would be this rush of like a hornet's nest. It was, uh, I think yeah. that's the difference between this. We had a strike in 2000 that ended 2008 uh, where they uh, nobody likes to say it, but essentially they helped. They did a, a certain group of the union. Unfortunately, the most successful writers in the union broke off and tried to back channel, and they thought they knew better than the rank and file. And it was, it was mm -hmm. ugly. Uh, it, 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 that was uh, social media changed all of that, uh, and and again that was from the ground up. The the, the ability to um, when the studios put out a quote that was patently untrue. One of the best things that happened the night we went on strike. Uh, the studios accused us of all kinds of things, and the guild just put out everything we asked for, and everything they respond, and every way they responded to it, and it was clear as a bell. The, yeah. the, the 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 dollar a day rate for comedy writers, the former committee for AI, it was just our ask, their response, and everybody understood. Oh, okay, so they just told us to go on strike. That's mm -hmm. basically what mm -hmm. this was, and they wanted the strike, and they were wrong, both morally, strategically, and tactically, to want the strike. But, but um, uh, the, the ability to respond, it's not just having 11,000 writers. There were 11,000 writers in 2008, but they didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Instagram. It was the ability to, to swarm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, and I, I was a big advocate for, uh, for that. That just, it, you gotta, you, you, you can't, this is guerrilla warfare and you don't know what's gonna work. So, you, you know, you saw it. Drew Barrymore was going to come back, right? Her TV show was going to come back and she had a few writers and her people, you know, and Drew's seemingly a nice person and she got clobbered and there were leaders in the guild saying, well, look, don't worry about Drew. She's, she's one show. Look at everything we stopped. But people couldn't stop themselves. You know, even now four and a half months, mm -hmm. it ends up. Uh, and I think the leadership that, that was afraid of, what, of that were, probably were wrong in that case because what happened was she... Uh, it took her a couple of false starts, but she she stepped back and immediately even guys like Bill Maher, who are yeah. less likely to care about other human beings, uh, <laughs> um, uh, realized this isn't the time to go back. Yep. He was he was ready to go back. And then he, he, he was, you know, uh, and we, we, we were, you know, whatever that is, four and a half months into the strike and suddenly five shows are coming back on the air. That that could be bad. That could open the floodgates. And instead, they got, uh, I mean, Drew, uh, I, I, I actually did feel sorry for her at the end. Uh, but, but she got hammered pretty good. She got hammered, and, and maybe it was, it, it was not proportional, and that maybe others should have, but it's, yeah. uh, the five shows all pulled back, all. It's like, not the time. And, and that was interesting, and that would not have happened before. And the ability to, the AMPTP messaging was terrible. AMPTP is the... the the trade association of the studios and mm -hmm. they don't know how to get out of their way. You know, they're just, just old school um, pound the table and, and it, it, times have changed and they hadn't either in their negotiating strategy or in their PR strategy. And they, they fumbled. Everybody was so afraid of these guys have gamed us out. They know what they're doing. And I've been in various organizations of my life and they never function well. <laughs> 
if you've so, worked anywhere in management, I feel like is essentially the same, which is like they're there and nobody quite understands why because they don't seem to know best, but they're there. Yeah, and nobody wants to be the guy. I've done I've been the guy who says that we could be this could be a mistake, and nobody wants to hear it. And if you're right, they really get mad at you later. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody wants in a corporation, nobody wants to go, you know, I'm feeling like it's a little different this year with the writers. No one's yeah. going to say that to, to David Zaslov, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the king does not like to be made fun of. Do you think that those five shows pulling back? Cause I've read uh, August and some other people have mentioned that it basically a, a handful of maybe top execs were the ones that stepped in. And um, do you think that the shows pulling back was like, a catalyst for okay like we, we this is different we have to we have to deal with this now. i don't know you know there were several catalysts along the way it, those yeah. five that four guys could have stepped in at any moment and wow. i think they were waiting and waiting i think there was the fear of the third quarter reports i think there was the sense of jesus christ this is getting there's more people picketing now than five months ago i think there was the sense that that uh, it's causing incredible damage to to la's economy that people are leaving you may not be, you know, there, it, you, the longer it goes, the harder it is for the strikers, but the harder it is for all the people affected by the strike and the harder it is even for the studios. They were beginning to lay off their, they held their own people on payroll for four months, but they were beginning to lay off people there. Um, so a number of things happened. I, I do think that, that uh, having those five shows announced they're coming back was perceived as okay. We, and, and then when the shows reversed, I think mm -hmm. that was, that had to be have been uh, like how many I don't know how many how many signals they ignored, but that was another you know. There's all kinds of stories about who back channeled to what. I think the irony is they settled it in three days of negotiation, and it could have happened mid July when SAG went out. That's the Screen Actors Guild, the actors. It was over. It it was over. You have two guilds out. You're in trouble now. And not only that. We're 11,000 people striking on two coasts. That was another 165,000 bodies on the picket lines. That's, That's a lot know, of bodies. And, and, you know, we were shutting, having good luck shutting shows down, but without actors, everything shut down. So mm -hmm. at that point, any rational company would have said, let's just sit down and figure this out with you guys. And instead, July, August, September, and it was, and, um, uh, you know, it, it takes people a while to come out of denial. And then to realize that it's partially their fault and then realize they can, you know, it's, it's an emotional process mm -hmm. for executives and corporations the same way it is for people. And I just think it's it, like grief. They have to yeah. deny it. They have to bargain with it. Oh, oh, there's all kinds of, unfortunately they got to bargaining is the last stage. <laughs> uh, do you have a couple of minutes just for a couple of sports questions? Yeah, I hope I hope I have you know your listeners tolerate all of this this other stuff, but sure. Our our listeners happen to love labor shit, so like this is totally good. Um, thank you for all this. So I'm curious first. Um, you're a Knicks fan. You're a Mets fan. Um, how did the Knicks come into your life? Like, in the, did, did you were you going to the city? I was like, a city kid. Always yeah. a city kid. Uh, uh, and city kids say city kid. You know. Uh, I don't know why, but, uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, I was a horrible basketball player, but I liked, I liked to play, but I was terrible. But the, the Knicks started to come together, uh, I guess when I, when I was 11, 10, 11, 12, you know, I was a big baseball fan early on. And mm -hmm. the Knicks started to come together. In those days, it wasn't on TV too much. You would listen on radio. 
mm. to, to the Knicks. It was, you didn't get many. Was it Marty Glickman? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Uh, he did the Giants. He did the New York Giants, the football Giants. Okay. Uh, uh, I kind of want to say it was Marv Albert, but that can't be right. <laughs> yeah, who, you know, Marv? Who knows? He might have started there and then moved I, on I, to I you. I vaguely remember Marv, um, but yeah. they, there was that team took place, and it's you know um, sometimes you're, the first few weeks of a, of, a, of a relationship cement that relationship, no matter what you go through, and then you, you had this golden period. And really, the first year I was all in on the Knicks was the was the '69. That's the, the magic. Oh, nice. You know, and and little did I know that would, <laughs> <laughs> that did never happen. Would never happen. And not only that, it was an odd year for me. I got a scholarship to a a, a very good, a, a life changing private school in the Bronx. But I, I and I I was a local fan. I had no money, but I, I bet that year on the Mets, the Knicks, and the Jets, and Ali. And I fleeced a lot of cynical kids. Yes, and it you really made, you know, and after that, I thought, don't ever gamble again because it's probably. <laughs> but but, but the, the, the Knicks that year were, there was, it was everything about team and, and, and the, the players had beautiful personalities. There was the, 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 it was red. I, you know, I know that team, you know, from Dick Barnett to Billy May and Bob, like, I, you know, you, you still remember like the 11th and 12th guys on that yep. team. Yep. You know, Phil Jack, but it was it was the workman. It was the the it was Dave DeBusher, you know, the, the, the sort of the the worker like guys. And it was Clyde and Clyde, who was still with us and maybe to me a great national treasure. He was so cool. And he was on the cover. There was a magazine called Jock Magazine that basically ran for only a couple of years. And it was only about New York sports. Oh, but, wow. Uh, it, it was a great magazine. But they and they it was the, the golden year. When they started, they, they, famously oh. they had the Mets planting the, the World Championship flag. They did the thing of the one cover was the Mets planting the flag, and it was like the flag at Iwo Jima, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a great cover. And they had great artwork. And I, awesome. I, I knew I wasn't going to be an athlete. You know, some kids dream of being. I dreamt of being a sports writer. Yeah. So I, I read, I, I would, I, I read every, I read the Post, the Daily News, the Times every day. I had Jock Magazine. I had Sports Illustrated. I had the Sporting mm -hmm. News coming in. Mm, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I knew I knew stats, and but that that team was just so great, and the the passing, the the way. So something happens where you form a bond, and it gets you through like the eighties, <laughs> 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 and it and it even got me through the you know the and then the nineties. I I eventually ended up getting season tickets with three or four other guys. Like in '88, I was part. I was invited into a group, and I got like six tickets. And in the '80s, by the way, things were so bad at the Garden. You could go on game night and slip two to five dollars under the ticket thing and get like seats down low. <laughs> you, nice. You know, you, nice. There was, there, you could just you got anything. You would do, that was the experience. You would say you got. You, I, I remember you'd slip a two dollars, two dollars, and you go. You have anything down low tonight, or you get press seats, or you get it was. It was called this is not I, James Dolan's Madison Square Garden. No, not at all. No, <laughs> um, no. But it, and and so I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't. I don't think I got to a game until mid '80s. I went to one or two, and then I was in this little group. And then yeah. people dropped out, and eventually, uh, I, I got a package and and kind of brought five guys. It was like an apartment with five roommates kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it timed out with that second great run of the 90s with the Knicks, with Star, you know, and Mace and Starks. And again, there was a working class quality to that team. Uh, uh, um, oh, I'm so sorry. 
You're fine. Uh, that. Um, and, and, but that, it was really that first year in 73 when, when Earl the Pearl came in and, and, and um, Lucas came in. Something, yeah. th th those two seasons uh, were things of beauty. And, and, uh, and, and it, was a, it was, you know how we always call the garden the Mecca and all that. But that was, basketball was a city game. It was a New York game and it was a New York team. And you could, you know, I, I mean, I actually, I read Bill Bradley's bi autobiography where he talks about rooming with Walt Frazier, you know, which yeah, yeah. is great. Just the, to me, that's a great TV series. <laughs> Bill mm -hmm. Bradley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and Walt Bradley Frazier. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and Clyde was, with, with, first thing he was named Clyde after Bonnie and Clyde, and the, the, that he was the sharpest dresser in the world. And the, uh, with the, the full length mink coats on the Rolls Royce and, then mm -hmm. horrifically mm -hmm. traded to Cleveland in the plaid shirts, but the, the um, but the, there was something, uh, and it was the Mets that same that same year. So that yeah. you know, you, you uh, I I wonder if I will ever, it won't it won't mean quite that, but I wonder if I'll ever experience that again in my life. You know, and and I, I remember people's uh, the Ranger fans had a, the same uh, sort of lost half century, and and I remember people. Saying to me, I hope they win uh, before my father dies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but the Knicks to me, that was that was there was the notion that teamwork and and thinking and seeing the open man could beat bigger guys and tougher guys. It was a little bit of a, uh, a certainly with LA, it was like it was a David and Goliath thing, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. uh, and and. Only in LA do they root for Goliath. <laughs> it's true. It's true. What about the Mets? How did you? How did the Mets come into your well, life? It's funny because I was. A, this is horrible. A horrible admission. I was both a Met and Yankee fan as a kid because I just. You were young. It. it happens. You're you know, I, I, it's hard to explain. <laughs> My dad hated the Yankees. He grew up in the Bronx, but he, he was. Oh wow. Uh, and he hated the Yankees because they they always bought the pennant. He he perceived them correctly as a corporate team. Uh, yeah. um, you know, but I but Mickey Mantle was there, and that was kind of great. But yeah. and but but the, I think the first ball game I ever went to, my grandfather took me to the polo grounds to see the Mets their first year, hmm. um, and, and I was just cold. And I remember he stuffed newspaper in my shirt to keep me warm. Uh, <laughs> and nice. he was like, there were pillars, and but the Mets played their first season at the polo grounds. You know, mm -hmm. and th that team was great. The the the, uh, the the team Breslin wrote about. Can anybody here play this game? You know, right. marvelous Marv Throne, Throneberry and Ed Cranepool and, and all these well, guys. Choo Choo Coleman on that team? Yeah, Choo Choo. Yeah, and Roger Craig. Yeah, yeah. They, they, were, they, they assembled a bunch of over-the-hill National League stars. And, and you know, I mean, wasn't there the story marvelous Marv, Marv Throneberry finally did something right, hits a home run to, to seemingly win the game. And then it turned out he missed second. He missed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just – it was just um, – you knew they weren't going to win, but it, they were, and Stengel was the most entered. When I, I remember being six or seven, trying to understand what Stengel was talking about, thinking <laughs> there were, I, I, I just wasn't smart enough yet to understand them, you know, and Yogi Berra ends up there. And the, 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 so no. there was a, a, a wonderful um, uh, human quality to that team. And then the, there was, again, the, the next season was not a miracle season. It was well-deserved, but there were reasons for it. The 69 Mets was a miracle. Yeah, uh, I think what people don't always remember now is that it wasn't like the Mets that year just took off and coasted to first place. Like in August, they were still like they're trailing Chicago. You needed that black cat thing to happen. 
Yeah. When they got to the playoffs, the Braves were heavily favored. The Orioles were heavily favored. Like none of that was supposed to happen. None of yeah. it was supposed to happen. No, and 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 it was it was uphill all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, that that cemented my relationship to the Mets. And over time, uh, you know, the my father was right about the Yankees. <laughs> and, uh, yes, and, he was. <laughs> and actually, when the new stadiums came in, that Yankee Stadium, the the corporate mausoleum feel of Yankee Stadium, as opposed to the the, the, Shea the, was so beautiful. I, I loved Shea too. That so was the, the outside of Shea is, is should have been preserved and just yes. you know that's that's uh, that's a shame. But I, I like the new stadium. It's, it's got a nice feel to it, and and uh, I, I just over time I just I don't watch much football, and then uh, I have issues with the NFL, you know, uh, uh, and CTE and things like that. And yes. I, you know, uh, that's 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 me. But I, I, the Mets and the Knicks. And I, I think you've seen me write about this a little bit. There's, generally speaking, there's a moment in the Knicks season where you know it's over. And usually it has been in the recent years around the time that the, the uh, hot stove league begins to heat up. And you can begin to think maybe the Mets will be good this year. And, 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 and around the time the wheels fall off the wagon, wagons for the Mets, like the Vegas games start for the Knicks. So that there's... <laughs> There's like a circadian rhythm to these. This is a cycle of uh, of of hope, despair. Oh, and I can now I can root for the Knicks for a few months. And that just <laughs> so it, it's yep. it's not a lot, but it keeps me. You know, I, I really, I, I mean, I think the Knicks, the Mets season was over when Diaz went down on the mound. I think that before, yeah. Uh, and I understand there's parallels to Aaron Rodgers, but this was, this was, this was that ended the season. Yes. emotionally i think it just knocked the wind out of them this year yeah i think so. um, i don't think they were ever prepared for that uh that was the one guy who couldn't go down you know mm-hmm. um and and he did and that was that but i like that team now i like i love lindor i i i, I think it would be folly to lose alonzo i like the mm-hmm. kids you know I, I, um, yeah. I love alvarez i think he's great i love yeah. watching him hit um and i, I and i kind of like buck i know he had a, a an I like Buck a lot. I know people are down on Buck. I don't think that like a lot of went wrong this year was Buck Showalter not knowing how to manage. I thought last year he was, I was more excited for Buck Showalter's hiring than any Met manager in probably like 20 years. So was I. And I thought he was magnificent the first year. So you don't go from being magnificent to incompetent. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have to look at what was going on and, and he, uh, yeah, I, I, I suspect he comes back next year. I hope he does it. There are other owners who would, you know, uh, scapegoat him. But mm-hmm. uh, I would like to think uh, my friend Steve is, is is smarter than that. You know, uh, I'd, I'd hope he is. And and I think the way Buck turned the team around when he came in last year, and it, it's you know I have more reservations about Tibbs. I don't, you know, I think we all. Oh, we can, yeah, we <laughs> all have, can get in line with that one. <laughs> we all have some. Um, by the way, Tibbs and I share a birthday and are very close in age. And yeah, I take okay. some, I take some solace for, uh, in terms of well, I, 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 he looks a, a little older than me, so that's fine. <laughs> and and he is a, a Capricorn, and we are stubborn. You know, there is a quality of, uh, he's not. Uh, uh, he's not intractable, though. I will say, for all his reputation, he is not intractable. He's done some things that nobody thought he would do. He played the young kids more than people thought. The benching of of Evan uh, that was that was interesting to me. The the eighteen million dollar bench warmer. Uh, yep. I, I think he's he's not intractable, but he's not nimble. But he, but but 
you know, uh, and I worry about the overuse of certain players, the, 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 the grinding players into the ground. And I don't understand. It's the same. You go back to Riley. When the night starts was two for 18. If Rolando Blackman had been allowed to play 10 minutes a game, uh, you might have been able to offset. You might have been able to do a substitution just to see what you have. But yep. these guys, there's a certain mentality some coaches and some writers have where they get something in their head and, and it's particularly in the game they can't deviate and that may be where where he's less nimble to a yeah. degree uh, chris herring wrote um a book called blood in the garden and there's a lot of talk in that book about and i think riley has sometimes reflected like okay maybe i could have been a little less like he did it with Starks. He did it with Charles Smith. Charles Smith, who is infamous for a bad moment, is a player whose knees were destroyed. And the, the consensus pretty much now is that Riley over, even when Smith was like in pain and wanted to sit, Riley ground him down yeah. um, because that's how Riley did it. By the way, I was at the Smith no Don't Smith. Tell no game. Don't tell me no. And Don't I was under me. the basket. I had a I friend who was a photographer and he said, you come down with me, you'll brace me. So I had my legs behind the guy and I <laughs> The only time in my life I was seated on the floor behind the basket and I watched it in this. It, it was worse than a slow motion car crash. It, I watched him go up. I watched him come down and it was just, it was one of the most, it was just cataclysmic, you know? Um, oh, I do. Yeah. I was in, I was in, that was 93. I was in high school. I just started high school and I wasn't allowed to stay up the night before I finished the game because it was too late. So I taped the game. Uh, I had to be on the bus at like 6.30. So I came down at like 5 in the morning, like ass early. I put the game on. I'm convinced the next year, because at that point, they'd won like 20 home games in a row. Yeah, there's no I'm, young and, I'm just young and stupid. And I'm assuming like progress is this incline. Like nothing's going <laughs> to stop them. And I remember I was on my because I had to keep the TV. There was only TV in the house. And I had to keep it very low to not wake up. So I'm like, I'm literally on my knees right in front of the TV at the lowest volume watching this. That play happens. I sat in just stunned silence. I ended up missing the bus because I couldn't, I couldn't get away. I couldn't leave the spot. I just watched a Jordan Peele, this great horror movie, Nope. And Nope has, for me, the most disturbing scene in a horror movie that I've ever seen. And when I finished the scene for 15 minutes, as the movie kept running, like I was like this with my hand because I couldn't. My hands are covering my face. That's exactly how I looked after the Charles Smith play. I imagine that's how you must have felt seeing it happen right oh, in front of you. It was like I'd been shot. Years, <laughs> years later, I was in Midtown Manhattan, and somebody sees uh, Charles Smith and his wife, and Smith gets into the the, the, the vehicle. Something anyway. Somebody yells, the usual New York, just like beat the guy up. Somebody yells something about, uh, you know, you, you missed the shot. You missed the shot. And she turns around and she screams, he was fouled. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mrs. Smith. And uh -huh. I, I, I would see him. You'd see him walking around town. He's, he seems like a gentleman. You know, he seems like a. He's very well liked. He's very well respected. Everyone you talk to who knows him at all says he's like an amazing person. He does not want to talk about it. Well, how can you? It's the it's yeah. it's either that or you go the Bill Buckner route and you sign the page, you know, the photos, and that's demeaning. Yeah, uh, yeah. but that's but sad he, to me. 
but how do you process that emotionally? You know, you, uh, those things, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know that you do. Mm-hmm. So close us out with this one. What are your thoughts this year on, how do you feel right now about where the Knicks stand? How do you feel right now about where the Mets stand? Better before yesterday's trade. <laughs> do you? Are you worried about the Bucks now? Well, yeah, I think that's a good combination. I, I, yeah. I, 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 uh, I you know, Holiday and Giannis. That's, that's those are graceful players who share the ball well. They're, they're, it's not like one of those. It's not one of those. You know, one from. It is not like the New York, the New Jersey, the, the Brooklyn Nets for the last few. It's not one of those. Oh. How are those guys going to share the court? It's like yeah, oh, this fits guys, perfectly. These are emotionally evolved super athletes with mm-hmm. <laughs> who complement each other. So yeah, uh, uh, I, I think I mean I think it'll be interesting, fun to watch. I hate to say mm-hmm. that, but right. as, a, as as my dad got older and he was he had Parkinson's, he I once uh, I you know I'd go up and talk sports with him up there, and I, there was a big game. It was a playoff game. I said, "Who are you rooting for?" And he goes, "I, I just want to see a good game." And I thought, well, that's that's wisdom, you yeah. know. And I think yeah. with the Bucks, you will see a good game. I, yeah. I loved. I, I hope that they don't overplay Hart because I think that that's. I I, I I feel like over relying on him takes away what makes him special. Yes, uh, I agree and, completely. And and, and I, it worries me because I think that Tibbs has a tendency to over rely and to to do that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'd rather see him off the bench a little bit, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, I think that that spark plug, that energy isn't good if it's the main ingredient for your, you know, I, yeah, I, totally. uh, I, I'd like to see quickly play a little more. I think that he's under, uh, he, I, I don't, you know, we've, we've seen this with, with this where certain guys get away with um, being asleep on defense, get away with taking ill-advised shots, get away with, yep all kinds of stuff and there's never uh they still get in 37 minutes and other guys get the quick hook and um i I think quickly deserves to move into the group of people that you let play through some Mm -hmm. mistakes Mm -hmm. um i I, you know i I saw yesterday that mitch robinson's been practicing foul shots so that's (laughs) that's just crossed everyone (laughs) but it's it, it should be they they should do at least as well. Last year, I thought that I, I, I was happy to see where they went, and I wasn't that surprised by it. I thought there was mm-hmm. it, it turned around with heart to, to a degree, but yeah, I, I think that they, to me, a lot will depend on where Barrett is, RJ. Oh yeah, uh, I, I you know we know there's a it's a Jekyll Hyde game for him most of the time, and, and uh, uh, can he sustain? And and, and I mean, do you have? I don't want to call it that, uh, Julia. There, there are uh, there are a lot of guys who can any given night break your heart or or make you cheer on that team. There's you know, um, yes, two main ones, and and um uh, uh and that's that's a lot to work through in in a sense for a team. You know, I, I obviously Brunson brings the first uh, stability to to the point. I, I don't know how you go back 40 years, I think. I don't, it, 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 and that makes a huge, <laughs> huge difference. Uh, um, but again, I don't I like it so. when he feels he has to take over necessarily. I mean, it's okay three minutes ago in the fourth quarter, but, but I don't, the risk to me is burning certain guys out. Yep. Uh, yep. And I, I'd, I'd like to have faith in a second unit. I'd like to see, um, uh, and I, you know, the, I guess the other question is, 
okay, there's no OB, and I know OB wasn't great on defense, but 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 the lack of size at, at, at that position in the uh, when Julius is on the bench could be not great, and Julius playing 38 to 40 minutes a night yep. is, a, is a recipe for disaster. Yes, uh, uh, that's probably the main spot of concern for me. That, um, and I was fine. I was I was not I was fine with like. Randall's a better player than Obi. He should play more than Obi. But Obi would commit like a misdemeanor on the floor. And you could see immediately he's looking over, literally looking over his shoulder. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Randall could could do lots of things that Obi couldn't. So, yeah, it's okay. Right? Uh, Randall had some diplomatic immunity that Obi did not have. I'm very concerned that, like you're saying, about overusing Hart. I think Hart, what makes him special is like applied small doses smaller doses and all the the idea that this guy is going to be basically your backup power forward i know the league is not what it used to be in terms of physicality but that just seems to me like you are clearly rocketing towards hard getting injured at some point or just worn down because yeah. he's he's a he came into the league as a as a two guard he's yeah. going to be your backup power forward i i don't like it and i you know i i go back to the 90s when you had mace and you had yeah. Oakley, and, and it's not bad to have a guy like that on the team, you know, and we don't really. Nope. Uh, nope. You know, Julius has some of that physicality, but he's got a scorer's mentality. Uh, a give me, give me the ball mentality to a degree. Yeah. I, um, and sometimes he doesn't read the triple team very quickly. <laughs> or the double team or the, yes, you're right. That's not his strength. So, that's so that's, that's, that's something I, I wish could get worked on, but 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 he can't be Oak, and he, he can't he, he can't play the the Oakley role given his his how important he is to the offense, and I, I don't know who that guy is on the team this year. Oh, uh, two words, Taj Gibson. He uh, will be back. I guarantee you. you, did, you did. I think if you don't see this front office sign. If the season starts and they haven't added an obvious like backup for it, like, there was just a guy that Houston, like a Usman, uh, Usman Garuba, yeah. who's a very young, he is a high motor, great defensive player, like different than Randall. Um, some some efficacy from deep, but not on a lot of tries. Um, I thought he would have been perfect, cheap. He's yeah. not someone who needs a lot of minutes, like perfect. The fact that they just they didn't even kick the tires on that guy, they just let him go. There's been no movement to sign anyone. I just feel that like I feel like Tibbs is going to Tibbs till the end. Yeah. I would not be surprised at all if Taj Gibson is a Nick before Christmas. Well, I'd be fine with that. I'd be fine with that. But I, I do worry yeah. about the, the uh, you know also you have some guys with the in the front court who are capable of defensive lapses, and you can't put all the pressure on Mitch. Yeah, uh, and, and um. Uh, that's where just one more guy in there to, you know, and I, I know like Hart, they're one player away from whatever it is that they need, but it's, it's a, is it a bad sign that like Hart and quickly are the second and third most prolific rebounders on the team? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah. Um, now I feel a lot better about the Mets than what I often read. I know that this was a disappointing season. Nobody thought this is where they would be, but the fact that they have an owner who immediately, saw okay it's not happening i'm not gonna swallow my losses i'm not gonna take the same cast out next year oh, denial. Made, 
I'm going to use my wealth and basically use it to pull in prospects and chance like just because of the owner, the manager. Now he got David Stearns, who he's wanted forever. I, I thought that was, that was that was a hole in the lineup that got yep. filled, and I think he's a smart owner. I thought pulling yeah. it broke my kids' hearts. I miss Canna. I'm you know I I, I yep. understand yep. for uh, but but what they picked up on guys who probably weren't coming back next year. Uh, and and now you can even you have so much duplication. I, I you know it just felt like the Knicks stacking guards, the the Mets were stacking infielders like nobody's business. But mm-hmm. you, some of those young infielders can also be packaged away for something else too. There's there's flexibility with that. But to take a a, a farm system that had been you know um, just run into the ground and restock it like that. I like I like Senga. Obviously I like Senga. Who doesn't like Senga? Yeah. I think that there's you know the pitch. It's pitching uh, next season, but it, it's. I, it's not going to be one of these things. Remember when the Yankees like suddenly it all died and then they were like, uh, this is probably before your time, but there was the moment. No, 65. Yeah. 1965. And then it was, and then they, it was, it was 15 years before they got, they got out of that hole. I don't think, I, I think they're compa- The Mets are very competitive. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 the, the, what the, the Braves dying. I hate rooting. The, why do we have these teams? Oh. I know <laughs> <laughs> the Braves have been tormenting me for a decade. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was the, the there was the Bulls, there was India. There are certain teams that just break your heart, every destroy your consistently, hope consistently. You know? And I don't, I don't see how you, uh, you know. It'd be interesting to see. I, I, I'm looking forward to the World Series, but the, yeah. there's a couple of teams that are are going to be hard to that they are going to be hard, that division that the Mets are in is a, is just. Yeah. Shocked, and you play them all the time. It's yep. the divisional play is, unt- but but we got a good. There's good guys there. I hope that I think they have to sign Alonso. I think that would be. I'm uh, hoping so. I'm, I just think it's it. You don't trade guys like that. You just, mm. you know, uh, it's the Tom Seaver move, or the, you know, you and don't Ken, trade. Kenna just made comments. Kenna just yesterday was saying in an interview, like he has nothing but. He had like three paragraphs worth of praise for Pete Alonso. I've never heard anyone on the Mets complain about Pete. Like, he hits home runs. He's beloved. There's no problem. He, like, yeah, no, guy. no. I, just give him. So if he wants ten years, you're gonna, you're still gonna be play, paying. You're gonna be paying Scherzer's salary ten oh. years. You're gonna you know, pay Lindor for another eight years. You know. Yeah, yeah. 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 So is it possible that when he's thirty-seven? His productivity will not be worth the salary he's given. Yeah, okay, that, that's probably the case. But but sign him up and and um, and 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 you've got a nice core. Uh, you got a catcher who can who's better than McCann. Oh, yeah, <laughs> he can catch and hit, which is nice. Catch and hit, and not into yeah. the, and not into plays. <laughs> of course, watching McCann have a great game against the Mets was the most Mets thing ever this year. Oh, I know. But, you know. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. our long national nightmare of every catcher hitting 180 is over. So I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, our, our nice defensive catchers who can't hit. I'm very happy with Alvarez. Very, very happy. Um, and I want to see Wilbur Flores come cut back, now because my. Oh, I'm sorry. We all do. Maybe he'll. You know what? I feel like Steve Cohen, they're retiring um, Strawberry and Gooden's numbers next year. I feel like Cohen has a good pulse on what the fan base is into that maybe Wilmer Flores. Um, I'll just say on my, my last note here before I, I close the episode, I love that the Mets owner is possibly, because baseball doesn't have a salary cap, 
is the only owner in sports who subjects other billionaires to the exact same tactics that they use against the rest of the world. And you see how much they fucking hate it. His whole thing is, I've got money. I don't need to care. And they can't stand it. So just want to say that about Steve Cohen. Um, he's our CEO. He's, he's our billionaire. Um, thank you so much, Warren, for being on today's episode. Um, it really meant a lot to me. And I'm um, loving to talk about the WGA and sports with you. You always have um, an invitation to talk Nick's interview you would like. Please, those of you listening, follow us on Twitter at Jacobin Sports. Email any anything you want to. Thoughts, questions, suggestions. We're going to be doing a, a pickleball episode next week because somebody turned me on to what an enormous story nationally everything is with pickleball. So chime in. Jacobin Sports at gmail.com. Um, you can follow our guest on Twitter. I believe it's Warren Light TV. Yeah. Um, if you are, if you want to jump on the Titanic while it's sinking, I'm still there. Um, <laughs> we'll see for how much longer. Uh, please also subscribe to our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Jacobin Sports Show. It's just the right thing to do. Um, thank you, listeners, for lending me your ear. That's all for this episode. Peace out. <laughs> <laughs>